I went into Reed and I did okay. They said, we're going to bring you back. I think I went back a total of eight times. The room kept getting bigger. Look, they didn't know who I was. They had no idea who this person was. They had never seen me, heard of me. There was no headshot. There was no history. There was no agent. So from 20th Century Fox's standpoint, they're going, well, he's perfectly a good actor, but I don't think we can give him the job. But I kept showing up and I kept doing a good job. And then finally, in what they call the network test, which is when the finalists come together and the room is probably 20 or 30 deep with very serious executives who look like they'd much rather be somewhere else, you have to perform your scene in a very high stress environment. And I got the job. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is episode 153 since I started this thing four years ago. So it's pretty exciting, and it is also the second to last episode of the season. And hopefully everyone's going to have a good and healthy holiday season, and you're all going to gather around the Christmas tree or the Hanukkah bush or somewhere around a nice fire by the ski hill or by the beach and listen to this podcast together. My guest is Ben Koldyke. Yes, Ben Koldyke. You know, this last three episodes are all with entertainers. Mike Morin was last week, the radio guy with all those great stories. Ben Koldyke, the actor. And then my last episode next week, which I'm not going to reveal just yet, but an absolutely incredible individual who is so, so entertaining. But this week, Ben Koldyke. Well, you know who he is? He is the guy that was in all sorts of different TV series, including Big Love, How I Met Your Mother, Work It, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, The Newsroom, Back in the Game, Masters of Sex, and The Good Place. Maybe that's why that name rings a bell. He's got such an interesting backstory. His dad was a former investment banker and a trustee of Northwestern University. His mom is a member of the family that controls the Laird Norton Company, which is a big investment company with roots in the timber industry in the Pacific Northwest. So he has a really interesting background. He went to Dartmouth College way back when. He was the quarterback of the football team, no less, while majoring in English. And then after graduating, he became a high school football coach and an English teacher back in Chicago, where he was from. And it's interesting about the zigs and zags of careers, isn't it? Because one day he bumps into someone that was influential, that is influential in TV business, and they have a little conversation. And one thing leads to another. Next thing you know, Ben is trying out for his first TV pilot, which was called Boldly Going Nowhere. I don't think that went really too far, but he got his foot in the door. And as I just mentioned up front, he ended up in all kinds of different series. So how does that happen in the first place, right? And what does it feel like to have that first reading, that first tryout? You really want this thing and not a lot of people get it. And actually, how do you go from being a quarterback to an English teacher to an actor? How do you even get an agent in the first place? There's so many questions I had for him. 
And he also has been around some superstars in entertainment. He was on the series The Newsroom, which is an Aaron Sorkin series. And Aaron Sorkin, of course, is one of the great television writers. Jeff Daniels, famous actors in that show as well. And naturally, I most certainly ask Ben all about those people and what he learned from them. So it's an interesting story, isn't it? Someone who may not have been the one you'd think of that would end up becoming an actor. Sports was a big deal for him. High school teacher ended up taking an acting class at Second City in Chicago, the legendary improv house. And then, you know, some stuff finally happens. It gets tough, it gets tough, it gets tough. Then he meets someone and the door starts to open. Ben is thoughtful, empathetic, and entertaining, which is a pretty good guest. So on this episode of the Sidcast, we get Ben Koldyke, we get the guy from all kinds of TV shows, including The Good Place, someone with a fantastic backstory. Let's get right to it. Ben Koldyke on the Sidcast. Welcome back to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am here today with Ben Koldyke. Hi, Ben. Hi, how are you? Great, and great to have you on the Sidcast. I don't know that I've had very many actors, <laughs> let alone college football players, on the podcast. So there's lots of kind of interesting things to talk about. But as you know, we were just chatting before we started, and I like to have a diverse set of people with all kinds of different backgrounds. And I want to start by just trying to get a sense of this sports to acting transition. So we'll start with step one, which is sports. You grew up playing a lot of sports, I'm sure. And that became a big thing. And then it probably influenced where you went and what you wanted to do and came to college. So can you share a little bit about the really early days of Ben Koldak? Sure. Sports was my world. And as an adult now looking back, I think somewhat to a fault, it was a dominant theme to the point of exclusion of everything else, but I was good at it and it was my sort of ticket. I was a better baseball player than I was a football player, but I wanted to play both sports in college, which meant that I would not be taking one of the scholarships I was offered in the Big Ten, which was sort of my initial dream was to play baseball in the Big Ten, like my brother did for Northwestern. But despite not being the best quarterback, I did love it. And so it became sort of my focus. I played both sports at Dartmouth, baseball and football. But I stopped playing baseball after a year just to focus on football. There was more going on there. The current coach, Buddy Tevens, is the coach at Dartmouth. I was in his first recruiting class, which was all very exciting time. And Dartmouth football had been down in the dumps. I think when we arrived there, they were something like 2-10. and 10, And my senior year, we won the Ivy League title. So it was a really fantastic thing to be a part of. But what's interesting to me about sports and acting, when you're trained as an athlete, it is challenging to take on an artistic sort of way of life. I was brought up on scoreboards. I was brought up on timed events and you either won or you lost. It was very cut and dried. And in the artistic world, despite the fact that Hollywood is grossly competitive place and can be a very difficult place, to be an artist, you have to sort of let go of the scoreboard. That probably has been my biggest challenge to date, trying to mellow out on the athletic mindset and focus more on my creative side. So Ben, when you talk about letting go of the scoreboard, say a little bit more about how that translates in entertainment and in acting. I think that if I were to keep an eye on the scoreboard, it would be a ticket to insanity. The nature of what I do is very stop and start. There'll be long stretches of time where you're not working. For me, that means writing and focusing on some of the other things I have going. Well, you know, it's competitive. Sports, as you said, right, is a winner and is a loser, but you're also trying to be the best. You're also trying to be the best. I've had my successes. And when they do happen, it's really quite a ride. It's quite a rush and quite a high. But you need to temper that with the realities of this choice that I made. And that means that it's going to come and it's going to most decidedly go. And you have to be okay with that. I was trained and taught that if you lost a game, it was a very, very bad thing. And you would obsess on it and you'd go back and watch film and you would criticize your performance and think, what can I do better? 
If I approached acting like that, I don't think I'd be talking to you today. I think I would have been out of it a long time ago. I mean, that's really interesting because it applies to different walks of life as well. So you were a baseball player as well. So yeah. Derek Jeter was legendary and plenty of other players and golfers. This is even a bigger thing is you strike out or you miss a ball you should have hit. You got to forget about it because if you let it get to you, the next time you're coming up to bat, it's hard enough to hit the ball and have that baggage. And in golf, you know, you hit a bad shot and it's the same type of thing. Yep. So that's true. I, mean, I think what you're saying is that that's true in acting our entertainment as well. It is. I don't mean to imply that it's an anti-competitive environment. This is an incredibly competitive environment. But if you're on the creative side, there just has to be a temperance. There has to be an understanding that this is not an all or nothing sort of thing, that opportunities will come and go. And you just have to keep a sort of middle ground, almost a meditative middle ground that allows you to deal with the whims of what is a very up and down business. So just to speculate for you, do you think that that is a mindset that the legendary actors, even of modern times, the Oscar winners, DiCaprio, or take even Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, the legends yeah. of our modern times. I don't know if you've met or worked with any of those people, but you understand them to be sure at a level that our listeners probably don't. And so what's their mindset? And I mean, do they obsess? It always looks like Pacino's obsessing over every part he's got, but that's just me as an amateur watching. I think they do obsess, but I think they obsess about craft. I mean, look, I can't speak for other actors. I'm sure there are actors who spend every moment of every day paging through Variety and The Hollywood Reporter trying to figure out how they're going to get on the next rung on that ladder. But I would hypothesize that folks like the actors you mentioned do obsess, but they obsess about the actual craft of their work. They obsess about the small moments. They obsess about character. They obsess about being a person in a place, as my acting teacher used to say. So there's definitely competitive spirit. It's just a question of where it's put. Right. My guess is they don't obsess too much about how they're fitting in or how they're fitting out. You know, these guys have been through a lot and the men and women at the top of the industry have dealt with it top to bottom. I think they're mostly obsessed about the specifics of the work, which is a healthy obsession, I think. Yeah. It makes me think also of other sports and some athletes have said they could be performing at absolute highest level. They can't, but there are other circumstances. Like in skiing, everyone follows Michaela Schifrin and, you know, in this past Winter Olympics was not her best. Nonetheless, she's still going to go down in the record books as one of the greatest skiers, female skiers ever, maybe the greatest because she's not done yet. But I remember listening to an interview with her and she said something like, all I think about is myself. I try to be the absolute best I try to perform the absolute peak of my ability at the right time. And if I don't win, I'm not happy about that, but it's, I can't get stuck in that. That's right. Because someone may have had the race of their life. Who knows? That same day. Exactly. So it's interesting to think about. I think there's, you know, the term that is often used for what we're talking about, the people that are doing kind of the opposite is they're careerists, right? They're analyzing and managing and thinking about their career rather than just doing the work. And I think we've all seen some of those careerists actually do okay and that rubs everyone the wrong way <laughs> instead of just doing <laughs> yeah. the work. Yeah, so acting and sports, I mean, they're different as you described, but there's a connection. But what made you want to make the shift? Did you study drama? I spent the early part of my life with a dream buried deep in myself. <laughs> it's funny, I looked back at the Dartmouth football program. My father, who I just spent time with, collected all my stuff over the years. It was an old Dartmouth program. I think it was 1990. And I put down as my career goals, actor and writer. And I don't even remember writing that down, but I did not step into the acting world until I was 31 years old. I was a school teacher and a coach. I did some odd jobs in production to sort of get a sense of what this business was like out here. So I was a late bloomer to this game for sure. Why do you think that was? It's so interesting that you said that you wanted to be an actor and a writer, but you kind of kept that under wraps for a long time. 
I wish I could speak intelligently about it. I view it as sort of a regret in my current state, and that's not the healthiest approach. But I just didn't know what I wanted to do. As a young man, I was not very self-directed. You know, I was an athlete and I had coaches and I was told where to go. I was told what to wear. I was told what to do. Not unlike acting in that respect. (laughs) I just had coaches and I was, I hesitate to say blindly going through my life, but I definitely was not someone. I meet young people now who are so, at such an early age, or at least seemingly so, they are very directed at what they want to do and how they want to approach their life. I was not that kid. When I graduated from Dartmouth, I was very stuck and confused. I knew I wanted to be on my feet. And so teaching made a whole lot of sense. And I thought at that time I wanted to maybe be a football coach. But these are all just very insignificant, slight things in my mind. I really didn't know. So it took me a long time. In teaching, obviously, there's a performative element. You know this. And I really grew to like it. And what happened to me was I started to steer my curricula toward senior English at the Providence St. Mel School in Chicago, I created a segment on stage plays. And we started focusing on playwrights like August Wilson. I taught at an all-black school on the west side of Chicago. And it was very exciting to bring in African-American playwrights and authors into my class. But over time, I would take these kids to go see plays and we would analyze plays and we'd meet the cast at the Goodman Theater or Steppenwolf. I had a moment where I was watching those folks on the stage and I said, I think that's it. I think I'm going to be one of those people. So at age 30, much to my parents' chagrin and utter confusion, I said I was going to come to California. I was going to teach at the Kipp School in Inglewood, and I was going to study how to be an actor and a writer at night. And that's what I did. And it took me about five and a half years until I got a break. (laughs) So that is such interesting. So one thing I'll tell you is having talked to now over 120, 30 people in the podcast, and we have these kind of long conversations hour-long conversations. Your pattern is a more common pattern than you might think. It is true. It just seems today there are more and more young people that are just so focused in step one, step two, and let's move forward. But the clear majority of people, and I'm talking to people quite successful in lots of walks of life. I had one guy, his name is Philippe Bourguignon. He's been in the hotel business for years. He was the CEO of Euro Disney. And he used the term zigzag. And he says, you have to zig and zag. Other people use different terms for the same type of thing. And he says, a life without the zigzag, he didn't say it's not a life worth living. He didn't go that far, but he thought there's so much to be learned. You learn about yourself along the way. That was exciting. You do. And I think it applies to acting as well. If you asked me today, I would not trade my life experience and professional experience after college between the time I graduated and when I started acting. I wouldn't trade it for formal training at Juilliard. I wouldn't trade it for any kind of singular training in performing. I draw when I perform, undoubtedly, I draw on my own life experience as an athlete. I draw on my life experience as a teacher. And so as much as I like to think, wow, you know, maybe if I went to Yale, I'd be far more successful than I am today, perhaps. But the zigzag has helped me tremendously, specific to my work. Yeah. Could we talk about that a little bit more? A little geeky in the art of acting. So you did go to school and train with acting teachers along with having a career. What do they teach you? I mean, how do you teach somebody how to act? (laughs) Oh, man. This is a whole nother podcast. (laughs) Look, it comes in so many shapes and sizes. I studied with a guy named Milton Katselis, who has since passed on. He was a stage director in New York, won a Tony. He was Elia Kazan's right-hand man. So I received a bouillabaisse of acting approaches. You can go study Meisner, which is a certain technique, and it's very specific, and there are very specific exercises. 
And then on from there, just myriad approaches to acting. I think the thing he said the most, and this is going to sound incredibly simple and uninteresting, but when all else failed, he would say, be a person in a place. And I think (laughs) that little phrase is the one that I take with me. He was looking for more than anything an authenticity to the work. And we did that through scene work, through writing exercises and monologues and things. But there's so much more to it. I'm trying to crystallize this. But you start out, I think my first acting exercise was what they call a, I don't even remember the name of the exercise, but you receive a phone call and you get bad news. That was your introductory. You know, I was 31 years old. I had never taken an acting class in my life. And I was being told to answer the phone and receive bad news from a family member. And then from that point, you learn about authenticity. You learn about feeling something versus manufacturing feelings. And then off you go and you apply that same sort of quest for authenticity to scene work and other stuff. I also learned from him to be a self-starter. If it weren't for my independent work, I made a series of very short films for very little money. The last one I made was the one that got me my break. And so I take away from my study with him, I think primarily the idea that you have to create your own break. And that's what I did. I created a short film and I Got very lucky. I got it into the right hands and I got myself a genuine Hollywood break. I think that going back to the athlete approach, Milton Katselis was very quick to tap into my sports background. And instead of it being a hindrance, instead of being something I needed to overcome, he taught me to incorporate it, to use it, use my physicality in my work, to use all of my history in my work, as opposed to trying to bury the jock in me. I was taught to really celebrate it and utilize it, which I thought was really insightful and helpful for me. It sounds like a very wise teacher that you still feel tremendous warmth towards. I do. I mean, he was a megalomaniac, like most acting teachers. He had that sort of very strange cocktail of ego and creative juice and all that, but he was probably... And I've worked with a lot of directors, but I have not worked with a director who had the eye that he had, which was trained in the theater in New York and trained with Eli Kazan and and that he just could spot things. My initial scene for him where I picked up the phone and answered, I was sitting down and I picked up the phone and I went through my my process and I had the emotional bubba. And his critique of me was, so you were an athlete. Mm. He noticed it just in the way I used my hands, in the way I spoke. He had no prior knowledge of me at all. He didn't know that. And he just said that. No, he really didn't. I literally showed up at that place and no one knew who I was. It was my first day, but he knew it right away. I mean, that's unbelievably valuable to be recognized like that so early and to know that you're in good hands. Right. So yeah, he was a very, very, very good teacher. You talked about authenticity. So can actors, you use the term manufacture, I don't know if you said manufactured feelings, but does that mean if you manufacture something, then you're acting in a particular role? You're not drawing on your own life experiences. Is that what that means? Well, yeah, I think so. Everyone talks about the method of acting. There's actually a new book about the history of the method approach to acting, which is very different. And then I think not to be too broad about it, but historically, English actors, to really generalize, act from the outside in. And that's a very viable approach. In other words, you start with costume, you start with makeup, you start with external things that then will slowly inform your internal approach to the work. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt about the validity of that. When you put on a hat or you put on makeup, it changes your approach and it changes for a short time who you are. The method approach and more what I was taught was to find it inside out, to find some emotional source that then can inform your behavior out in the world. So 
I don't think one is better than the other, but I think the answer to your question is yes. I mean, for me, and I think I even err on the side of being natural and authentic. It is the type of acting that I'm drawn to. I like to see real emotion and I can tell when it's not real. That's not all acting. And there's a lot of acting that is not intended to feel authentic. It is tend to be bombastic or out there or over the top or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But I was taught very clearly by a guy that believed in the rawest authenticity in your approach to the acting. As a viewer, I always feel like you could tell, actually, is it believable? Is it real? Do you really believe that this is, what was I watching not that long ago on TV? Inventing Anna. I don't know if you know that series on oh, yes. Netflix. Yes, I do. You completely believe that, I've forgotten her name. She's fantastic, this young actress. Yes, she's from Ozark. Yes, yes. She's on Ozark as well. And it is 100% this Anna Sorokin. And you can believe it. And sometimes, you know, you don't see it. But I wonder, like, how do you get in touch with your own life of experiences and your feelings? How do you do such a thing? I mean, yeah. many people try to do that through therapy or could be through things like, you know, meditation, yoga, and all kinds of other things, and drugs for that matter, but therapy. So I don't know what the question is, but I guess, how do you do this? Well, it's funny, you mentioned identifying authenticity versus inauthenticity. I was watching the Olympics, the famous snowboarder, Sean White, famously retiring and winning at the same time. And he became emotional at the end of his interview, but it was a calculated emotion <laughs> as an actor. <laughs> so even in the real world, you can identify moments that are more, to use the term manufactured than not. But I also want to point out that I think acting, a lot of times when you talk about the approach, it's in very individualistic terms, but acting is by its very definition, it is a collaborative thing. You're only as good as the person you're acting across. So it's a shared energy that you're creating. Um, so you're not stuck on an island saying, I need to be authentic all the time. I got to, how do I do that? But to answer your question in broad terms, in terms of the method, I worked on a show called Masters of Sex with Michael Sheen. And I had a very emotional scene with Michael Sheen, who I was intimidated to be acting across in the first place. And I thought, my God, I have to cry and I have to fall into Michael Sheen's arms in front of all these people. And I come from comedy initially. And so my dramatic work has been somewhat limited but this was pretty high-end dramatic work. And I was acting across from, you know, a very, very, very accomplished international actor. And very simply, and this is going to sound like a child, but I don't know, four months before I lost my dog and my dog had been with me for 12 years. And sure enough, <laughs> I did the most basic method approach. I said, I'm just going to focus on my love for that dog. Mm. I think I cried for 15 minutes before the scene even started. But that's what it took. And then frankly, there was no thinking about the dog when I was in the scene. And that's the mistake some people make is you keep obsessing about the dog. So the emotion stays, that's not true. The emotion is then transferred into a scene and hopefully the writing is strong enough and the other actors are strong enough that you can create it together. But that's just a silly example of how that approach can work. It's a good example and I think everyone can understand it. Have you in the past studied other actors, how they kind of do it? When I got to Dartmouth, I'm at the Tuck School, so the business school, and the quality of teaching at Dartmouth and at Tuck is extremely high. And I was hired because I was this kind of young hotshot researcher, but I had to teach at a very high level and I wanted to. And I remember showing up and I would sit in on the best professor's classes before it was my turn to teach in a term. And I watched them and they were magical, really, as teachers. You understand that. Everyone understands that. And I realized I could not do exactly what they're doing. That was smart. I'm going to pat myself on the back because yeah. I tried to replicate their teaching method, if you will, or approach to what was theirs. And it worked great. But what I got is inspired to find my own approach and to go at it at a very high level. 
And so I'm wondering if that story resonates. And then if you actually did spend time looking at and studying great actors. All the time. In terms of studying an actor, I would prefer a live setting. Watching actors in filmed entertainment is tricky because there's so many elements that are playing out, starting with the script, starting with the director, and then this and that. So seeing an actor perform live on stage is a education opportunity for me. But that said, I'm studying actors all the time. And the trick to your point earlier is to not compare. You have to realize, and this goes back to the athlete thing, you just have to realize that you are you and you're going to do your own version of these things. And I think actors do get caught up trying to mimic other actors. It seems like it's a growing trend. And I don't know why that is, but it just seems to be a lot of mimicry going on. And again, goes back to my teacher, really was about finding your own voice and not focusing on other voices, be they uber successful people or not. But that's a challenge because you can feel like you're on an island if it's just you. (laughs) But yeah, with acting, it's never ending. Everything I see, I try to draw something from everything I, you know, it's very much an ongoing education for me. Which I think that could be a lesson for a lot of people. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever your chosen career path, profession, expertise, what have you is, there are always opportunities to reflect, to learn, to see, even if it's people not doing anything that you're doing, it's kind of like just being self-aware and alert to the world around you. There's so much that you could learn. And by the way, it's actually a lot of fun too. That's right. Even if you learn nothing, it's still fun, but you will learn a lot. I really do believe that. I've been watching Tom Hardy, English actor Tom Hardy of late. If nothing else, I picked up from him a level of commitment. You just get a sense in his performances Mm. that there is a commitment level that probably is very difficult for producers and directors to deal with. But the end product is something very special. So you talked about your time in L.A. and working on, you had to wait a while to get that big break. So you were teaching yep, and then going to school at night. And I guess you were also doing some writing. And I think you mentioned some of your own short films. All of that you were doing? That's a lot. It was a lot. And I sort of look back on it and I pat myself on the back. I think, wow, you were really, <laughs> you were really cranking. It was a creative time in my life that I cherish. I was exploring and writing and creating. And I was writing this morning about, I wonder if I was happier when I was in the struggle rather than now that I've created a career, I'm working at least somewhat regularly. Was I happier then? Because I wasn't thinking about the business when I made my short films. I just thought they were funny. And there was a certain purity to that and an innocence to it that I look back on quite fondly. Yeah. You said you were trained in comedy originally. So did you go to Second City when you were in Chicago? (laughs) It's one of the reasons that I chose to do what I did. I went to Ah. Second City in the summer of, I can't even remember, 1995 or something. And I took one class and it was an introductory class. I think I misspoke earlier. I'm not trained in comedy. Comedy is just naturally who I am. Mm-hmm. In sports, I was the team funny man. In addition to being the quarterback of the third baseman, I was the guy that handled all skit night duties and you know made fun of all the coaches and things like that. So that's sort of where I came from as a person. I took one class at Second City and it was the class where you pretend you're a tree, the most rudimentary stuff. But then you got into the sketch comedy stuff and I knew right then that I loved comedy, but I wasn't as funny as these people. I think I want to be a full actor. I think I want to learn how to act. So when I came to LA, I had the option. I could have gone to... There's a second city out here. There's a groundlings out here. There's all kinds of various opportunities. But I chose to study acting with an acting teacher. Kelly Leonard was on my podcast. I'm not sure what his title is, but he's one of the top people running Second City. He actually created an entire business, like a side business of training executives using yes, but techniques and Second City (laughs) techniques, which I think is really great stuff. You kind of hinted at it. Let's hear the story. What was the big break? How does this happen that you get the big break? (laughs) 
Well, it's, a, it, it's actually a wonderful little story. So I said, I made my short film. I made one that I was particularly proud of, and I used to carry it around in my backpack. At that time, to give you an idea of how far gone I am from this time, it was on a VHS tape. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> the full half-inch VHS tape. But I was able to get it onto a DVD. So I made this short film, and I went to breakfast one day in Venice, California on a Saturday. And I saw across the restaurant a gentleman named Rob McElhaney. Rob McElhaney is the creator of a show called It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which has been a great success in comedy. I think it's the longest running sitcom in the history of sitcoms, to their credit. And so I decided to buy him breakfast. (laughs) So I bought him breakfast and I wrote him a little note and I said, I really love your show, man. Thank you for making great comedy. I forget what I said, probably something very stilted and stupid. So I paid for his meal and then I thought about going over and I said, you know what? I'm just going to leave. I don't want to come on too strong. I paid for a meal. I said, thanks for making great stuff. I'm out of here. So I forgot about it. And then, I don't know, maybe two weeks later, I'm back in the same cafe and Rob shows up and he comes over to my table and he goes, hey, are you Ben? Did you write me that note? I said, yeah. So we met and he said, so what are you doing? I said, well, I happen to have a short film in my bag. Would you mind taking a look at this? And I had done this a number of times to people. And professor, you just don't hear back. That's the norm in Hollywood. And that's true with auditions and everything else. The way you don't get a job in Hollywood is that the phone simply doesn't ring. You never hear. It just sort of phased into the ether. And I'd expected that from Rob, but not a day or two later, he called back and he said, I thought that was really funny. And I think we should meet. And so we started sort of a regular cafe meeting, talking about life and stuff. He tried valiantly to get me a job as a staff writer on his show, but those positions are very hard to come by and they rarely open up. So there was no traction there. And so we spent probably six months staying in touch without anything really happening. Meanwhile, Rob was developing a very popular and significant pilot at 20th Century Fox, pilot being a television show. They were having trouble finding their lead actor. And at the time, they had gone pretty much to everybody in town. Big names had read for this part. It was a space captain, a corrupt space captain in a sort of Star Trek kind of spoof show. And it was very funny. He said, why don't you come in and read for the lead part in this pilot? Now, at the time... I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a headshot. I didn't have anything except, you know, my short films in my bag. So this was a big opportunity. I went in to read. This was not my first audition, but it was darn close to it. I went in to read and I did okay. They said, we're going to bring you back. I think I went back a total of eight times. Eight times to do a reading to different people. The room kept getting bigger. Wow. Look, they didn't know who I was. They had no idea who this person was. They'd never seen me, heard of me. There was no headshot. There was no history. There was no agent. So from 20th Century Fox's standpoint, they're going, well, he's perfectly a good actor, but I don't think we can give him the job. But I kept showing up and I kept doing a good job. And then finally, in what they call the network test, which is when the finalists come together and the room is probably 20 or 30 deep with very serious executives who look like they'd much rather be somewhere else. You have to perform you're seen in a very high stress environment. And I got the job. So I literally came from nowhere to being on the cover of The Hollywood Reporter for being this sort of out of left field actor who got a really big job. My favorite story about that day when I got the job was I did the reading and I hung around and they told me probably 30 minutes after I performed that I got the job. So I was over the moon and I don't even remember what I did, but I got in the elevator and went down 20th Century Fox's parking garage, got my truck and started to leave. I was at the gate to leave the studio and my cell phone rang 
And it looked like a very important number, something 3,000, or yeah, I couldn't tell. I answered the phone, and it was an agent at the Creative Artists Agency, a very powerful agent, someone that I even knew who he was, sort of ran the comedy department at the time. And he was calling to congratulate me on my victory. <laughs> and I just stopped, and I said, wow. And I said to him, I said, you guys are really good. I mean, how did you possibly, possibly, how did you get my phone number? And secondly, more importantly, how did you know that I just booked a jet 15 minutes before? And he said, well, you know something, we're really good, man. We keep an eye on things. And, you know, he's very agenty about it and very macho and said, yeah, it's just what I do, man. It's what I do. I come to find out that night from Rob McElhaney, the creator of the show, that the agent who called me was actually the agent for the other actor that I beat out for the job. The other finalist. The other finalist. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the reason he knew <laughs> that I got the job is because his guy didn't. And I thought to myself, he must have had that other actor on the other line saying things like, I'm so sorry, it didn't happen. Keep your head up. I bet he must have switched over to my line and said, congratulations. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That is agenting 101. That's a classic. So I had a firm lesson in how Hollywood works right there. You could just picture that in Entourage, who is the agent. Jeremy Piven playing Ari Gold. Yes, right, right, right. That's right. He was great in that part, my goodness. So this is amazing. And what happens? You just get to work now? So we go to work and it's a massive budget, millions and millions of dollars. There's a spaceship and a captain's chair that I have to assume. And it's a whole thing. Oliver Platt acted in it. There was great, great cast. Tony Hale who's one of my favorite comedic actors, was on the show. It was very heady stuff. And we shot what we considered to be a pretty funny pilot. But in a shocker, the network did not pick up this pilot. So here I was after a couple months of being an instant celebrity, the acting career became very real very fast. <laughs> and I came down to earth and realized, okay, I'm not going to be a captain in space on 20th Century Fox television. What now? And luckily I signed with the William Morris Agency, which is one of the best, and they had a plan. And so I just hit the pavement and learned very fast. To get a pilot having never acted before is very, very rare. It seemed normal to me for about a second. And then I came down to <laughs> earth and it became a process of auditioning. And I got very lucky, you know, early on, I booked some pretty good guest star roles and some pilots of my own. And so I was able to come back and make it a viable career. I would have preferred if the pilot had gone, <laughs> but it was probably better that it didn't. So they spent a lot of money to do that. And then it just written off as an investment that didn't pay out. Yep. That's how they do it. Yeah, I think it's changed a little bit over time, but they still do it. They make these bets. The upside is so great for these studios and production companies that they can afford to shoot things and just toss them aside. That's a little bit of a venture capital model. You know, you can fail in a whole bunch of them, but you just need one or two that really hit it. And there's a ton of money in that. So you are known now. People knew who you were, but the pilot wasn't picked up. So what was the, I mean, were you in a better position or a worse position? Because obviously better because now you're known, but then it didn't get picked up. So are you back at square one? Was it easy or easier to get these auditions? Now you had an agent though, a top agent. So that must have made a big difference. That's the thing. That really made the difference. You know, this business runs on heat if you're hot. And I was hot. I was hot off of this pilot. I had booked it over many, many great actors in town. And so there was a certain amount of heat that these guys could capitalize on. So I was auditioning pretty regularly. So I didn't have a whole lot of time, to be honest, to obsess about it or think about the fact that it didn't go. I got right to work, which felt very good. So you had a part in the newsroom. 
And I want to ask you about that because, of <laughs> course, one of the greatest writers of TV and movies, for that matter, ever, yep. that was his show. So what was that like? The audition process was fascinating. I was told in no uncertain terms that I was not to improvise anything. Every comma, every dash, every period, every letter should be performed as you see it on the page. They were very adamant about this. They said, Aaron Sorkin, who is in the room, I had to go read with Aaron, will not tolerate any ad-libbing, even an um or an uh or nothing. It's exactly the way he's written it. And that's what you need to do. That's what you need to do. But just in terms of timing, what had he already done that everyone would know by that point? Because he's done so much over the years. I think he'd done most. I don't even remember what year that was. That was like 2012, 2014 range. Oh, yeah. He would have done a lot of movies by that point. I don't remember when The Social Network came out, but he certainly had done television. He certainly done The West Wing. I forget the one with Matthew Perry. The Social Network had come out. That was 2010. So, yeah, that. And then The West Wing, obviously. Yeah. Okay. He was fully Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, right. When I had to walk into that room and honor every comma. (laughs) But, you know, when a guy is gifted as Aaron Sorkin is, a lot of times if someone hands you a script and says, don't add any pauses, sometimes it can be very difficult because the writing just isn't up to snuff. But the fact is, Aaron Sorkin, if you do stick to the script, it's going to free you up as an actor because the words are so rich. They didn't mean to imply that I shouldn't incorporate my own emotion or my own performative stuff. Just don't change the words. But his writing is as good as it gets. It was a positive thing for me to focus on that script as much because the writing was there. And I was pretty proud of myself. I went in and tried not to make eye contact with Aaron Sorkin. (laughs) I stuck to my guns and I got the part, which was a real, real joy. The reason I did it was because there was a chance that the part might turn into more, but that did not happen. So it turned out to be just one episode. But to work with Jeff Daniels, who taught me about approaching a script, we spoke a lot about that and... I was so unbelievably taken. He had more words to say in that show than any actor I've ever seen in any kind of production. He had a mouthful in every scene. And I don't think, similar to Aaron Sorkin's writing approach, I don't think I ever saw him slip up. And he had monologues that were a page and a half long. He was just a professional to the nth degree. And I'll never forget it. And I took away from that a lot. So this makes me think of a very simple question. So basically, you have to memorize everything. There, It's not like what you watch on SNL with the cue cards in front of you. Well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> there are a lot of actors who try to, I think famously, Mr. Pacino, who you mentioned before, he's 80 years old or so. So for him, it's a different game. So he uses an earpiece on occasion and will uh, be fed lines that way. Wow. So, you know, it comes in all shapes. But yes, to be an actor, to be a good actor, you most certainly Memorize your lines. That's the first thing you learn. (laughs) And I'm amazed in the audition process. I'm amazed at how many people don't. A lot of actors just want to go in and, you know, have sort of a free experience, free association. And the words, maybe I'll use them, maybe I won't. I tend to take the Sorkin approach to my auditions and it serves me well. So from all the roles that you've had, what's one or two of your other favorites that you could share? My most recent larger role was on a show called The Good Place, Michael Schur's show with Kristen Bell, partly because it's fresh in my mind, but that was really a fun experience for me and a very meaningful one too, in the sense that when I first got the script, I've developed a sort of sensitivity to the prototypical white man, unwoke, corporatist, frat boy, you know, these things come along. And in this day and age, those parts come along more often than not. And when I first read the part, it seemed to be along those lines, just a sort of bombastic, entitled type of guy. 
and I had an organ reject. I didn't really warm to it. But after some urging on the part of my agent and some other folks, I decided to dive in. And I was so shocked, really, at how the part played out and how much more depth there was to this guy and the amount of fun I could have with this guy. So it was a situation where I went into it quite nervous and apprehensive. But after working with Michael and working with Kristen Bell and Ted Danson and finding the character, it became over the course of a season a real joy. So that was fun to go from some trepidation to really embracing something and making it something better than it was originally on the page. Have there been roles that your agent brought to you, gets pitched to you that you decided you didn't want to do them? Oh, yeah. And I spoke earlier about the types of roles that are coming up for white guys that are my age. And, you know, a lot of it is just placeholder type, typecast stuff. I do pass on a lot of stuff, even passing on auditions. I don't mean to say that I'm getting offered roles left and right. That's not the case. I'm a working class actor, there's no doubt. But I definitely will pass on some stuff that I just feel like doesn't give me an opportunity to do something different or do something fresh. Have there been any roles that you passed up that turned out to be kind of a big deal? No, I wish I had a story like that. (laughs) I haven't had that chance to be like, man, I could have been a Marvel superhero. No, there's been no big misses for me. There's been stuff I'd auditioned for that I didn't get. Of course, those stories are legion, but yeah. So I'm a big Curb Your Enthusiasm fan, and I know you were on one episode uh, a few years ago. And so I got to ask you about Larry David. What was it like? Not dissimilar to the Aaron Sorkin experience. My audition was fully improvisational with Larry David. So if you want to get nervous about something on a Thursday night before a Friday audition. Just know that Friday you're going to walk into a room with Larry David without a script and you're going to be given a situation and you're going to have to ad-lib. Now, as I said, I'm not trained in sketch comedy. I chose against that and went to be trained as more as just an actor. But I have comedic tendencies and I have skills. And so I went in there and I was absolutely horrified. (laughs) I don't think I've ever been more nervous. And it was just one episode. It wasn't some great opportunity, but it was Larry David and it was improvisation. I mean, I spent some serious moments in my car before I went up the steps to the audition because I just didn't know what to expect. But what I found, and this is true, I think a lot of times with improvisational type people, there's such a warmth and an openness to that environment. You mentioned yes and. It's that kind of energy. So when I walked in there, Jeff Garland was there and Larry was there and Cheryl Hines was there. The whole show was there. My nerves went away right away. Larry is kind and ridiculous and goofy. Obviously, funny is puts it lightly, but he just made it so comfortable for me to not have a script. (laughs) And so we were given a scenario where we were in a car wash. It's going to sound crazy, but the whole episode revolves around the fact that Larry David's car, which has not been washed in a long time, apparently it's covered in dust, had very crude images drawn into the dust. I won't go into what the images were, but they were over the top silly. And it was a question of who this person was. The whole episode was about who is drawing these things on my car. And that person was me. And we meet in the car wash and we have our exchange I was really proud of myself. I left that audition. I made Larry David laugh. I'll never forget it. I saw him look at Jeff Garland and they both laughed. And I said, even if I don't get this part, that's a win for me. That's a win. I made Larry David laugh. So that was fun. And then I got the job and the day was magical. He's just a very, very good person, at least to me. It was one day, who knows? But I'm always struck by people who are that successful, who still maintain a certain integrity and a certain openness and friendliness to people because it's rare. A lot of times the uber successful types, they're above the fray. 
Larry David is decidedly, and I think it informs his work, he is decidedly in the fray. You can argue that he is the fray, actually, <laughs> in his thing. So, Yeah. I'm curious about that process. So do you do one take? Do you do 10 takes? Do you play around with it? Does he say, or the director says, do this part, but then just kind of go off in another direction? Or do you got it in the first shot? Especially with that, you're finding it each take because new things are going to come up. You're going to say something new, and then you have to sort of analyze that. But Larry Charles, I think he's directed the bulk of Curbs. I'm not sure if he's directed them all, but he was the environment. Larry's the kind of guy that doesn't call cut, and that takes a lot of pressure off an actor. So he'll just walk off his chair with film still rolling, and he'll say, hey, how about this? And then without having to say action again, there's no sort of setup, no formality to it. It's a very informal experience down to the style of directing and production. And that was very freeing. There was less pressure. That moment of action, that's a very pressure-filled moment, especially if you don't have lines in your head. If you're improvising, that's a very daunting thing when they say action. And Larry Charles very smartly avoided that as much as he could. And so it became more of a conversation, which is, again, the collaborative reality of it, especially in something like this, where you're coming up with lines on the fly. So it became a very collective thing. Larry Charles and Larry David and myself would come together and we'd talk about it. Say, let's try this. All right, let's try that. And it was just a wonderful creative environment that has created one of the great comedy shows in television history. I mean, it's just an unbelievably funny show consistently year in, year out. And I think their approach has a lot to do with why. And so it's very interesting to talk about Aaron Sorkin on the one hand and Larry David on the other. Couldn't be. One is scripted by the comma and the other one is let's make it up as we're going along. Aaron Sorkin didn't say a word in my reading. It was a very heavy room and it was a very quiet room. It was the opposite of walking into a Larry David audition where I think when I walked in to see Larry, he greeted me like an old friend. He went, hey! <laughs> and I thought, well, that's strange. I've never met this guy before, but he really did that very warm and gregarious. It was antithetical to my experience with Sorkin. Nothing wrong with the way Aaron Sorkin did it. It was just decidedly different. As was the style of every word, every sentence, every verse is kind of creating and improving. Creating a whole show based on improv is such a cool idea. Do you know of any other show like that that's ever been around? Movies, there's a British director where he creates scenarios improvisationally and shoots an entire movie that way. I don't think I can think of another television show that is sort of this semi-scripted because the show ends up with a script, but they end up with the script at the end. <laughs> and so it looks like a very brilliantly written script, but the fact is it was born out of improvisation. But, you know, obviously you have Saturday Night Live and you have some of these sketch comedy shows, but I don't think there's many. It's hard. It's really challenging. I was just amazed at Larry David's mind at how quickly he would come up with things and throw things away and try something new. It was just this frenetic comedic pace that was really something to behold. And it's hard to do. And I don't think many people have that skill set. So it's a hard show to make. And by the way, you mentioned Jeff Garland. So on the show, they're best friends and buddies. And he's like the wingman for Larry and takes care of everything that needs to be taken care of. Is that the way it actually felt to you? A hundred percent. It felt like I was walking into a Thanksgiving dinner with an old family. I mean, it really did. They had been together for so many years already, but I think Jeff and Larry already had a relationship. So these guys were sitting on couches and having sodas and talking about football. I mean, it was really that kind of environment. Again, whereas when you walked into Sorkin, it was like walking into a business meeting. 
very, very different. So interesting that you could get to the very top of the profession in such very different ways. So Ben, we're just about out of time. I've enjoyed the stories and kind of picture you in the room and doing these various things. So I have one last question, which is my advice question. Oh boy. The twist on it is that it's advice to yourself when you were 21 years old. So if you can magically go back in time (laughs) to when you were 21 years old, I guess still at Dartmouth, maybe still playing football, and you could lean over to the 21-year-old Ben Koldak and say, hey, Ben, there's one thing you want to know. There's one thing you want to do or not do. What would that be? A bit of advice you'd give to yourself that you kind of wish somebody had given to you at that time. My initial response was, well, I would have told my 21-year-old self to go sign up for an acting class. <laughs> but I don't think that's right. I think the advice I would have given myself, given my situation, like I said, I was a bit of a floater in my 20s. I didn't know exactly where I was going to land. I think I would have told myself to spend 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day just thinking about various things that I might try in my life or various things that might be passions of mine. I didn't spend time quietly, meditatively thinking about what I'm going to do with my life. I think most of my friends, I think, did spend that kind of time, but I was never taught to do that. And I just sort of improvised my way through. So my advice to my 21-year-old self would have been to take a certain amount of minutes a day and just consider your life as it is and consider your life as you want it to be in maybe the next five years. Because I didn't do that work. I didn't have that. I don't regret it. But if I could have 10 minutes with my 21-year-old self, I think that's what I would say is to just spend some quiet time. And it's hard, especially now with all the noise and the computers and the screens. and the thing. That kind of time, that kind of more stoic time is hard to come by. And I think I could have used it back then. Yeah. And it's not that you have to come up with a game plan of exactly no. what you're going to do. It's just get in the process. It really is. That's exactly right. And I think I should have mentioned that. I think the thing is to not focus on some sort of result because that's pressure. And that's what am I going to do with my life? I did a lot of that. But to just sit quietly and consider how things are going and how you might want them to look in the future, just that process to do it every day. If you do it every day for a year or two, you're going to benefit from it. There's no doubt. That's great advice, actually, for lots of people. And something you can pick up, anyone can do anytime. That's right. Just basically it's reflection. And, you know, as busy as everyone is, 10 minutes a day is not a lot of time (laughs) when you put it that way. You could do it as you're walking down the street. You could do it when you're in the shower. You could do it anytime you want. Just be purposeful about it. Ben Koldak, thanks so much for being on the SIDCast, for sharing your story with me and my listeners. It's really been fun. Thank you. Professor, thank you so much for the opportunity. It means a great deal. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCast is produced by the podcast Laundry.